All right, so I'm here with uh, Amit from uh, Promaxo. Very, very excited about this interview. Um, yeah, Amit has uh, participated in conferences in the past and has done really, really well. Um, so Amit, what you provide is uh, at Promaxo is a MRI device that can go into any physician's office, right? Absolutely, yeah. And so do you want to explain that a little bit further and uh, kind of give an uh, audience an idea as to how this can help? Yeah, I mean, we wanted to tackle the major issue that MRIs have, that they're not versatile and adaptable. So we're making an MRI more accessible by creating a point of care ship. So we have a compact, lightweight, uh, single-sided MRI that can fit in any physician's office. But also we took it a step further. We have our own robotic platform and our own artificial intelligence that could enable live interventions under uh, an office MR. So we look at ourselves as a confluence of uh, MRI, robotics, and artificial intelligence to create a whole 360-degree uh, solution for a patient and a provider. Wow. Do you ever think that you're going to provide this uh, in a patient's home? That's a good point. I mean, uh, we haven't thought about it. We've had some conversations with a couple of big strategics who would like yeah. it to be a completely portable play where it could go directly to consumers. Uh, but that would create a big shift in how healthcare is provided. I do think over a period of time it would happen, but that's not our business plan today. Yeah, because it's just going to take a long time. Infrastructure changes will have to be made, all these things. Yeah. 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 But eventually, I think, I think you'll be the person, right, in that space that will be implementing it. I mean, I would think so, right? I mean, that's where medicine is moving, to make it closer to the patient. Uh, the closer you can personalize, I mean, personalized medicine is the name, is the word to do it, right? So if you can do yeah. it, you know, we're right at the forefront of that uh, innovative pathway. Why do you feel it hasn't been geared towards that? Like, why, why do you feel like it's been so slow moving towards, you know, more direct to patient care? I think uh, healthcare is a pretty regulated market. When you look at it, I was having this conversation recently as well, that why don't things happen and why do things happen at this way? I think the community is open to it, but there are a lot of regulations. When you think about it, there's licensure issues with physicians, uh, right. who's going to be the liability in that case, who's going to cover that liability, are the payers going to be okay with that? So that whole ecosystem is pretty complicated today. A uh, consumer or a patient becomes as only one part of the equation. You're also dealing with the providers, you're dealing with the payers, and then you're dealing with local governments and overall federal government regulations as well. So how do you all fit in? And nobody wants to be that trailblazer that does something which completely disrupts it. And then uh, there's a huge liability concern around it then after the summer. You know, everyone that I've told about uh, your, your company, they're so excited about it. You know, they, they think MRI, I, um, scans are such a, a big challenge in healthcare yeah. um, because it takes so long, right, to get your your MRI um, scans back. Um, and uh, I, I think there's just multiple steps to getting that. And because you're providing it so easily to any physician, it's just it makes it a lot easier. Um, oh, thanks for that. I mean, that was the whole value proposition behind when we started the company because. This was a technology I was exposed to myself and sounded too good to be true in the beginning. You know, you're talking about a compact, single-sided MRI, you know, your first one. Yeah. Yeah, it almost does sound too, too good to be true because like you tell it to people, they're like, wow. Well, it's more so like they're like very fascinated. It's not, no, uh, you know, they don't really doubt it. They think, wow, that's really fascinating. If, if you can pull that off, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, that's what exactly what Brent was talking about, right? It's, it's a solution that that people want. 
So when you go in with saying something like, oh yeah, we have a single-sided configuration, an MRI that could be placed in an office, it does, you know, it does get people excited. And the next step is, or the next question is that last 10, 15%, what he was talking about is, are you, are you guys gonna be able to pull off uh, this thing? And then that's what we've been doing over the last four years, because the excitement has always been there in the physician community, even in the venture capital community, uh, the corporate strategics as well. Uh, are fascinated by what we are able to accomplish with them uh, if we're able to do what we want to do. So now it's just been like de-risking that and proving ourselves. And we've done a lot of that over the last uh, four plus years now. So getting close to that uh, to that final goal. That's great. I love it. How did you get the idea to do this? Is it just because you experienced it yourself and then you're like, wow, this is this has got to be the, what we got to start focusing on? Yeah, so, you know, I was involved in a couple of other startups before this, uh, where we were doing, uh, we were using MRI information. So we launched the first fusion guidance system about uh, 10, 12 years ago, which would take MRI system or MRI images, uh, co-register it or map it onto ultrasound, which is the standard of care in urology, and then use the higher sensitivity specificity of MRIs and combine it with the accessibility of an ultrasound. Uh, and we would do that, and that was a point of care shift itself, changed how things are done today, uh, changed the standard of care uh, by making MRI accessible to some extent. But the problem there was that you would still have to send a patient out to a scanner. You know, it still took weeks and if not months to schedule MRIs and then get the patient back into a urologist practice. So the process was still pretty convoluted, even though it was slightly more accessible. Yeah. So we had seen that in our career. So we thought, why not, if this could be done? And we're not the first ones who thought about doing this. Uh, Philips wanted to do MR-guided interventions in urology and breast, uh, but they just couldn't commercialize because of the cost of a big MRI and placing a patient inside it and, and the urologist not owning a $3 million MRI. So when I chanced upon this technology about almost six years ago, five and a half years ago, uh, it was an NIH, NSF-funded study at that point. Uh, so the federal funds were coming in and the grants were supporting it. Uh, and the inventor met me. He had known me. me. He's a radiologist, physicist himself, one of the inventors, Irving Weinberg. He met me and, you know, we started talking. And he said, you guys have already commercialized fusion. You've done that. Why wouldn't you take it a step further and just take an MRI directly into a, a urologist's office? And my first reaction was, great. Uh, first of all, I don't want to just work in urology again. Uh, I want to do something which is beyond urology. Uh, but then this, this provided me that opportunity as well. So I did my own internal due diligence. Uh, like I mentioned that in the past as well. My co-founder was brought in through my wife, who's a serial entrepreneur in the biotech pharmaceutical side, Abita. She introduced mm -hmm. me to Michael Bartholomew, who's a former Pfizer guy, Baxter guy. So we both spent our own time. We spoke to John Rice at GE who used to be vice chairman of GE. We spoke to DJ Sarota at Cook Medical. And we asked these guys, you know, what do you guys think about this? And when we saw that there was a positive response from the strategic community, from the physician community, we said, okay, you know what? It's not just us getting excited about our own thing. Other people like it, so we should start a company. Uh, and that's how the whole story unfolded. And we had Promaxo started in January, 2016. Uh, and then the first step was we went to our customers, uh, the physicians, and we said, if you guys love it, would you write checks to support us? And they did. So then it started becoming a reality that, okay, you know what? If our customers are willing to write us checks today, 
with just a very early prototype and this big vision, then we should execute on it. And, and that's what the, the, the steps have been over the years. I want to, I want to get into how you, you're getting, you were getting so many people to write checks in just a bit, but um, was there ever a point in time that uh, you doubted whether you could pull this off or not? See, when you're an entrepreneur, right, you doubt yourself every day and then you wake up in the morning, and, you know, you're just happy. <laughs> so that's the life of an entrepreneur, right? So, you know, you, you yeah. so we, how we did it, like, okay, we're just being showcased by Startup Grind as the startup feature of the quarter. And this is across tech, this is across devices. So we're going to be showcased to about 400,000, 700,000, uh, you know, of their startup wow. community around the world. And, and. And, you know, we'll be the only startup being featured there. And one of the questions that is in there that I'm answering today is, is, you know, how did you present this in a way that made sense to the investor community? So we thought of it the same way. We said, you know, how can we keep de-risking it to our, so we explain it to ourselves that this thing works and then also de-risk it so investors feel comfortable. So one thing we did right in the beginning was let's not spend too much money if we don't have to keep it as lean as possible for as long as possible. Right? That allows us to get to that promised land with least amount of capital spent. But secondly, we looked at it and we said, okay, there are four or five major things that need to be de-risked over a period of time. One is the technology itself. Uh, one is the regulatory framework, the commercialization piece, how this is going to fit in being so disruptive. And then finally, who are we going to use to commercialize this? And once we answer those questions to some extent, we can, you know, ourselves feel good about it. So, we started looking at the technology. Of course, that takes time, takes money. But as we kept doing it, it, it kept you know, removing the doubts we had about this amazing technology. And then the next pieces were, of course, how would it go through FDA? Uh, who would we have? How would it sell? All those questions were done through market research reports. Uh, you know, we, we already looked at willingness to purchase. We looked at multiple specialities. Uh, and then we started talking to corporate strategics or they started reaching out to us to see, okay, these could be the guys who help us scale. Who do you think would buy your uh, company if, if uh, you actually commercialized this and scaled it? So there are like would you buckets <laughs> of guys, right? I mean, that's a, that's a good problem to have. We are fortunate in a way that we have two or three buckets of corporate strategics that could buy this out. Uh, the first bucket is the traditional imaging guys, right? Where you have the Philips and the Siemens of the world. Now yeah. there's Fujifilm and and you know, Canon, uh, you know, those are the one bucket, but then we are super excited about the second bucket as well, which is the image guided interventions guys. Right. And these are the Metronic strikers, brain labs of the world. Yeah. We're doing a bunch of work with images, but they are doing interventions like biopsies and treatment. And then there's the third piece, which is, you know, guys who are just tech guys who really love on the health tech size, what we are doing with data driven imaging, data driven robotics, and data-driven computer-aided diagnostics someday. So we see some synergies there, and that's what fascinates us, you know, as we see Walmarts and Amazons and Apples of the world getting into healthcare and doing pieces of imaging, doing pieces of, uh, like you mentioned in the beginning, directly providing these services to consumers or patients. Uh, all of those things are coming together. So it could be a combination of these, uh, you know, or it could be one of these guys. Now we, and then there's a, there's a fourth bucket, which is somewhat not traditional, but the robotics companies of the world, which is the fastest growing field in, in devices as well. 
there's about 75 companies who are doing surgical robotics now. Some of them are big guys, some of them are younger guys. How can we kind of create? Is like the, is it like the, they do like, the, what is it called, the Da Vinci? Yeah. They, yeah, things like that. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Like intuitive surgical is a big one. That's a $65, $70 billion behemoth. Uh, and then there's, there's other guys like Medtronic is doing it. Uh, you know, J&J bought Oris, they're doing it. So there's, there's all these guys who we could partner with to guide their surgical robotics with our MRI platform. So there's, there's a lot of things we want to do if we're in existence in five years or 10 years. If not, then it could be through one of these guys. How far off are you to uh, commercializing this and getting in the market? We're pretty close. I think we should be cleared by end of the year. Uh, you know, we're working with FDA on the exact indications for use. I think we've kind of reached a compromise there for the urology market. Uh, so we have another meeting scheduled with them in the next uh, month or so. And then we plan to submit everything uh, soon thereafter. Uh, and then the goal would be to have a clearance by end of the year and start uh, commercializing this, uh, you know, yeah. if not by end of the year, then Q1 of 2021. I love it. Um, and your, your background is engineering, right? You're mechanical. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm a mechanical engineer. I have a doctorate in mechanical engineering. I've done a lot of commercialization efforts in engineering. More recently, and I say recently, but now it's like five years out, I did my MBA at Duke, uh, mostly on corporate restructuring and, uh, yeah. you know, but, but yeah, like driven by engineering, I don't do any engineering work seems like it nowadays. I just raise money and talk to, you know, people, but, but yeah, like the basis of my career is engineering. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, and, uh, what, what excites you, uh, every day doing something like this, because it seems like, man, if we, if we get MRI devices in every, this, it seems like this, that's where this is going. You know, it, it, eventually it will get to the point where, you know, people can buy an MRI device and just have it in their home. Uh, obviously, we need to take the proper steps to get to that, right? But um, we need to get give it, put it in every physician's hand so they don't have to order an MRI scan for their patients. Yeah. Um, but like, what um, what excites you about doing this consistently every day? What gets you up in the morning? What what drives you to to de develop this device? I mean, the biggest, uh, you know, motivation is that it could create a big impact in the patient community, right? So you start a startup in healthcare with the big vision that this will be used on patients someday and it'll create a better ecosystem for uh, outcomes in the patient community. How we look at it is it's a non-invasive protocol that a patient goes through. Uh, they don't have to wait weeks and months to think about getting an MRI scan inside a bore uh, they could do everything in an office setting. So it's much faster uh, and potentially, you know, it could provide faster diagnosis and faster treatment pathways. So there's the healthcare efficiency part. Uh, but what fascinates us, each one of us, uh, what keeps us going on this every morning you wake up, the first thing you're excited about is this is going to be used on a patient. And, and we've done that in the past with our startups. Uh, you know, when, when you see it being impacting patients, like I'll give you an anecdotal story uh, you know, we were working in the prostate cancer space with uh, Zero Cancer, which is a big organization in DC that wants to eliminate cancer. And they would bring in patients along with the local practices. And you get to meet these patients, you get to meet their families, you get to meet these survivors. And, and they tell you, right, okay, you know what, I had a biopsy using 
your system. Uh, and that's, that's amazing to know that, you know, you did make an impact in somebody's life. Uh, you wouldn't have thought of it when you were creating a product that this would be used on this specific individual. But when you can kind of personalize it and you meet that person uh, and they tell you that, okay, it made an impact, that's huge. I mean, you, there is no more bigger gratification you can get as an entrepreneur. Uh, I'm sure the Elon Musk of the world as well, think about it, their car being driven by somebody, right? That's, that's what it is. But here you're impacting somebody's life, which is even bigger. So I think it's, that's the motivating factor for me. And I believe for everybody in healthcare, I think uh, that's why they're here. I mean, there are other ways we can make money, but the fact that we can do something that, that impacts somebody's life is, is the biggest motivation factor. Yeah, definitely. And <clears throat> life's the scale, you know. Yeah. Um, did, so I feel like for every entrepreneur, there's always like a personal aspect of why they're in healthcare. Yeah. Uh, and do you have any reason you're, you, you yourself are in healthcare because of a past experience or something that may have happened to a family member or anything like that that caused you to, to go, wow, I really need to change this system? Uh, you know, so I'll just give you my history. Like I did not think when I was starting up that I would be a healthcare entrepreneur. Uh, there are a couple of things that happened for me. When I started my doctorate uh, in 2001, uh, the whole anthrax scare happened. Uh, and this was just, you know, fortuitous for me that there was a project which was being funded by U.S. Army and DOD at University of Florida that I was selected for as through my advisor. and you know, ended up doing a project which could impact the whole landscape of bioterrorism and indoor air disinfection and all that fun stuff. So when I was going through it, I mean, I had gone in thinking I'm a mechanical engineer, I'm going to be working on cars or some novel things and, or, you know, doing something in renewables, which is what my advisor was known for, Yogi Goswami, but ended up doing this interesting project, which is not truly mechanical engineering, but then what is mechanical engineering? It's everything nowadays. So when I was doing this, it, it started making this thing, you know, rolling these wheels or moving these wheels in my head that, okay, you know what, this is really impactful. This could do things. Uh, and then while this was happening, you know, I was, I was stuck in US. My grandfather had prostate issues. Uh -huh. uh, never really thought I'll be doing urology at that point. Uh, but then I joined a company, worked as a scientist, was working on food and healthcare related projects with Ehrlichid. And then this opportunity came along in California for a prostate fusion device with Eigen. And that's when it started coming together. You know what, I, I looked at my granddad, uh, you know, he, he had an enlarged prostate, the prostate was removed. I did not know much about urology personally till I went into it. And then as you go into it, it starts creating an ecosystem around it. I still don't use that story a lot because all of us in some ways have been impacted by it. So it's not just me personally who wants to use it. So I tried to use it in a bigger picture where, you know, we all men get exposed to all this. You know, my wife has been an entrepreneur in biotech since her early childhood days because of her family. So all of us can see it every day. Uh, yeah. so, so I think that's, that's where it's easier to kind of come in and say that, you know what, this will create an impact everywhere, not just personally for me. Yeah. And I think right now there, there's so many devices that in their, in, in their own sense, they are primitive and there's, there's always a better way. And so, you know, what I think most healthcare entrepreneurs, they, they go into healthcare, you know, because of a personal reason they go, wow, this, this system 
needs to be changed in some way and I need to change it. That's how they feel about it. And I feel like it's so, it's, it's such a great thing because not only are you, um, you're helping people, you're helping people at scale, right? You're, you're, you're doing it at a, a very high, you know, scalable level and, you know, doing so, you know, definitely helps change the world in, in a sense, right? Because, um, yeah, it, it definitely does. I mean, the, the cancer treatment is going to be solved by entrepreneurs or mm-hmm. cancer, cancer is going to be solved. Uh, any, any issue in healthcare, um, you know, uh, irregular heart uh, beats, uh, you know, um, irregular heart arrhythmias, um, you know, th- there's going to be, there's going to be a, a solution to everything eventually. And it's going to be like people like you that go through the hardship of having to figure this out. Um, that's going to be able to, to make the, you know, save people's lives, which is great. This is wonderful. You're absolutely correct. I mean, I look at the community around me and I'm fascinated by everything people are doing, you know? So for me, like when I'm sitting with 29 other CEOs who are part of startups, each one of them has a unique story that's creating an impact in the overall landscape. Uh, so I don't look at it as like us doing better than them or them doing better than us, but more importantly, the small pieces that we are trying to solve. Now, some of them may sound bigger uh, in the big equation, but each one of them contributes significantly in making healthcare better, uh, or the system better, right? You said there are a lot of things in the system that could be improved, but it's not very easy. It's like, you know, you're trying to move this big ship and inertia is, is, is always there. So as you're doing these things, you know, over a period of time, you would think that it would become more efficient. It would be better for patients. Yeah. Um, well, urology, if you, if you don't uh, resolve any urological issues, you know, it leads to a lot more things, right? Kidney yeah. failure, heart failure, potentially, you know, it, it really, it really leads to a lot more. So definitely help helping with urology is, is very helpful. And then cutting the time in which people can actually see what's going on with patients uh, in, in like a 10th of the time is, is wonderful, you know, um, which, uh, you know, I love that. Um, now from an investor standpoint, you know, you, how much have you raised so far? Yeah. So we've raised uh, about 17.3 million in dilutive capital from investors. Uh, and we've the underlying technology has gotten another 9 million plus from grants. So the total money that's gone into the technology is slightly over 26 million. Uh, we are bringing in more money. We have commitments to, we just did a rolling close on our series B1 on May 15th. We raised about, uh, you know, converted all our notes and brought in additional new money, 2.3. And then we are bringing additional three to 4 million in uh, end of July, early August, which is committed by our existing investors and some other investors. So the goal is we're doing a 10 million round. Uh, we should close uh, in the next uh, two to three months. And then moving on to a bigger round post FDA clearance for commercialization. Yeah. It's such a, it's such hard work to get funding. Right. Yeah. Uh, but, but you've done a great job of it so far. Um, so you've raised yeah. 17 million. Um, what do you think investors in the past have been so interested in, in, uh, in investing in your company? I think people invest in people. That's how I look at it, right? Like they do invest in technologies. They do invest in the disruptive uh, landscape of a technology or the impact it could make. That's one aspect of it. But then they do invest in people. They're willing to be uh, to people who could execute, who could pivot fast enough if something is not going right. So we've been fortunate to have had a good team around us. 
Uh, we've been fortunate to have the right advisors and investors uh, who have supported us to get more investors in as well. But then they've also seen that we've executed on a lot of our promises uh, and projections. And that's allowed us to you know, build a rapport with the investor community. Uh, some of it is, of course, from our previous lives. You know, people know you and they're more comfortable with you. But then it's also you start talking to people two years in advance of some investment at times. But you're building this relationship to that point where they could come in and you're aligned with their thesis. Uh, but you keep showing them progress over those two years. So that's been a systematic process as well. As we go to these bigger rounds, which we are doing nowadays, you know, some of these people we're talking to now who are willing to write checks at a certain time period, we've been talking to them for a couple, we've been talking for three plus years. Uh, and it was never the expectation at that point that they were going to write a check three years ago. It was always like, you know what, we just want to chat with you. And they would love to chat with you if it was not only about when are you going to write me a check, right? So, and then they understand your business a lot better. They see you progressing. It hits a certain milestone where they are willing to come in and and you know, then things happen. But so also if you can have more people interested in it, you, you're in a better space than if you have only one investor and one uh, entrepreneur in some ways, then you don't drive it as much. So I think that's been another thing as well that we've had more people than one interested in, in doing work with us. Hmm. And uh, so, <clears throat> you know, from the investor standpoint, you know, what is their return? I mean, this, to some investors, this could be a very personal thing, right? And that's why a lot of investors invest in healthcare is because it's very, like healthcare is a very personal thing. So, you know, it could be, you know, you know, my dad couldn't get an MRI scan in time and mm -hmm. for whatever reason, you know, he had a, a, something that progressed a lot faster than it should have. Right. Um, but like, uh, no, you're absolutely correct. I mean, for most of the men, it's a personal matter. Like if you're, if you're like 60 plus, you know, you've had some kind of a prostate disorder or you're going to have it in the next 10 years. Uh, it's like one in seven to one in nine men are going to get prostate cancer. Uh, you know, about if you live long enough, you're going to have some prostate disorder. So either you personally are, uh, have seen it or one of your family members or your friends have had it. I don't know anybody in our circle who doesn't know a family member or a friend of theirs who has had a prostate issue. So it's very, yeah, yeah, you're you're right. My my dad was getting getting UTIs for a while. Um, we we resolved that, but he was getting a lot of UTIs. So, you know, you never know what could happen because of those UTIs, right? What could develop? Did I lose you, Amit? Oops, looks like looks like I lost you. No worries. Well, Amit, uh, really, really, really interesting. Hey, hey, man, we, we I don't know what happened there. So no worries, no worries. Um, <laughs> yeah, no worries. Uh, it's Zoom, man. I mean, we're gonna go with the socio. The next conference after this, we're gonna go with a, a software called Socio. Event. Okay. Yeah. For anyone that's listening, that's uh, um, that is planning on doing conferences, go with Socio. Uh, events. Uh, Zoom is really hard to manage. Um, yeah. Events. Yeah. You know, it, it has its purpose, you know, I like Zoom a lot, but it has its purpose for a few things and doesn't have it for, um, for other things. So, yeah, um, it just, it's, it's hard to control it. I mean, but depending on their bandwidth, it just becomes harder to figure out when it's going to do what. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, totally. hundred um, percent. So that's why we need like socio, which is a, a better event software. But um, so, you know, from the investor standpoint, um, everybody's experienced at some point, you know, people with uro urological disorders, right? My dad had a UTI, uh, mm -hmm. I was just saying, um, he had many UTIs. He was consistently getting them um, due to uh, uh, just a lot of factors, right? But, um, but yeah, I, I know firsthand how it can affect everything in the body, right? It can affect yep. kidney function, which can affect other things, liver function, heart function. It affects everything if, if you don't resolve it quickly. Exactly. Uh, you know, you know, I think our understanding of, of healthcare, you know, initially when we hear things like, you know, urological disorders or diabetes or things like that, we don't take it as seriously until we experience someone that has these things, mm -hmm. right? Because, because what may seem like not as uh, benign, not as bad as, you know, what people say, you know, like diabetes, for example, it can lead to like 10 other things, <laughs> you know, that it's like, the, it's like the gateway. Ur urology is like that type of, you know, field as well. It's like the gateway to like other things. <laughs> and it's like really horrible if you don't resolve these things. And no, you're, you're absolutely correct. I mean, it's, it's, it's the human body is a complex, you know, it's a complex mechanism. Like every part of it does impact other things. And your quality of life is a big thing with urology. It's not just, okay, you know, I have, I have some issue. It's also like how it can impact your quality of life. Like one of the things people talk about with prostate cancer is you can get it treated, but then you also have to worry about, you know, incontinence and you have to worry about, uh, you know, impotence at times. And, you know, people don't realize it, how much it can impact them. And also it could impact your mental health based on all these side effects that you could have. So it's, it's critical. Uh, people are living longer. People want to enjoy their lives. Uh, you know, people tend to retire later in their lives and then they want to have a life of fun and, you know, uh, with all the quality of life, uh, yeah. you know, things that they should have. So that's where a big thing is also like, you want to not just provide a treatment or a diagnosis. You also want to think of the patients, uh, what it's, how it's going to impact them. So that's where we feel like it's not just about having a, a protocol that helps, but also a non-invasive protocol that could then impact a faster diagnosis, a faster treatment pathway. Yeah. And then, have no quality of life issues if, if possible. So I think the, the physicians are all for it. That's where all the robotics companies are coming into doing more and more targeted treatment where they could leave a lot of your, uh, you know, other organs and uh, as much of your organ as possible uh, safe. So you could live a life, which is to the fullest. I think that's, that's going to be a huge thing in healthcare over the next few years. Uh, to keep making it better and better for people. I think like one, you correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the biggest issues uh, in relationships, if they occur, are health issues. Um, mm -hmm. Because what happens is, and, I've, I, and I have a spouse that has had health issues. I'm not going to go into, you know, what health issues, but, um, you know, when, when somebody is more depressed, when somebody has a lower quality of life, when somebody is, uh, it agitates them. It makes them more angry, more sensitive to, to certain things. And what it does is it causes people to lash out if they have health issues because, I mean, who, who can blame them, right? Like, 
if, if you're not getting like, for, for example, if you, if something's affecting you in your health, you're, for instance, you're not getting any sleep, you're getting three hours of sleep a day, you know, you're going to be ultra sensitive. You're going to be, you know, combative with people. And, and so I think, yeah, absolutely. Like that, you know, there's, there's widespread effects, uh, besides the actual ailment that this could cause that these, these sicknesses can cause. Right. Um, and so I think it's really important. It, it just affects every facet of your life. If you, um, if you don't take care of things and, and the sooner you can catch these things, the sooner you can heal and, and avoid all these other things that come with the, the, the sickness. Yeah, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. I mean, one of the biggest issues is also for the family members, like the stress of it, right? It's, you know, nobody wants to live with a disease. Uh, you know, they want to figure out what's wrong and they want to treat it right away. Uh, people say that, okay, you know what, even with cancer, like you can do active surveillance, but we see patients who don't want to be on active surveillance. They want it out of their bodies because the impact it's having on their families, the impact it's on having on their relationships. Uh, you know, it's tough to be a patient. Uh, you know, it's hard enough being a patient yourself. And, and, and then, you know, it's hard for your families to deal with it as well because it's not just the disease. It's all the stress, all the anxiety that it's causing uh, in your personal and uh, as well as uh, other relationships. Yeah, definitely. So you, you've already raised $17 million and you raised another $9 million from uh, the government, right? You said? Okay. Um, so for, let, let's, let's talk about, you know, advice to investors and then advice to entrepreneurs who want to raise money. So advice to investors, what, what are, what are some of the things you see yeah. investors? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Oops. Oh, we're cutting out again <laughs> for whatever reason. Come on, zoom. What's going on? <laughs> you were frozen for a second. So I was going to chat, you know, so anyway. It's oh a- yeah. 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 So, um, what are like mistakes that you see investors making? What are things that you see that investors are doing positively? Um, just to help any investor who's listening, you know, regarding investment, like what, what are some things like that happen very, that commonly happen that maybe investors should address or change about their approach? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it just depends. Like we invest ourselves and you know, I'm, I'm an angel investor along with my wife and a couple of our friends. We've been pretty active over the last three, four years. Uh, but it depends what kind of an investor you are, first of all. So I'm going to give my feedback being an angel investor uh, and not as much as a VC or a private equity, which have mandated thesis. So it's much easier in some ways or much more difficult in some ways. But just as an angel investor, I think a lot of things that we look at is is too much analysis is sometimes not good. Too much due diligence does not give you a better idea. Uh, you have to make a bet. If you're coming in early enough, you are taking a risk and that risk has a higher reward. Like one of the things I learned in my business school from one of my professors, uh, and it was a very interesting way of looking at things. So he's an angel investor himself and he, he used to say this. He said, if I'm gonna invest 25 grand in a company and you know, let's say my opportunity cost is $400 an hour. If I've spent more than 60 hours in analyzing that company to put 25 grand in, I've already spent 25 grand. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a way of looking at things which made me look at things very differently. It's like valuing our own time. 
And if you value your own time, you're of course going to value the entrepreneur's time as well. So I don't mind people asking questions. I think it's a great thing to do. Uh, you get enlightened, you get more questions. But as an angel investor, if you're going to come in with a small amount, it really doesn't help you to do 100 hours of due diligence on a company. You're betting on the team. Only if you're doing a bigger, you're not opposed to due diligence. You're just saying, do, do it when you have, you know, a bigger amount. Like if you're, if you're investing a lower amount, why spend all this time? That's what you're saying. Absolutely. I mean, if somebody is going to write you a million dollar check or a $10 million check, they're going to do three months of due diligence. That's absolutely warranted, right? Yeah. Because they have a strict mandated thesis. They have to do all this. But if you're an angel investor, the best way to do it from my perspective would be if you're going to do that, follow somebody who's done the due diligence, you know, somebody big enough who's done it, let them lead it and you come in and you believe what that due diligence was. Now there's of course your own biases, which play a role. And these are gut feelings. You know, if you're a good investor, you'll always have those about a person, about a technology, about a market, you know, use those uh, as best as you can. But, you know, just to spend 40 hours of your life doing due diligence on a small investment just makes it harder and harder, especially if you're going to do, let's say, two investments a year. Uh, and you need to devote a lot of time to a lot of companies before you make that call. Uh, and that, I don't know if that helps. Uh, yeah. Again, my personal opinion, people can dispute it, but I'm willing to talk about it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. No, no, there, there has to be a... Um, an ROI in your time that you spent, yeah. right? There has to be a, you know, and, and, you know, maybe if there's a larger amount, but it, I don't know, maybe people who um, don't have as much make more of a big deal about, you know, an investment. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. Um, you know, that's, that's absolutely human nature, right? So you, you're yeah. more careful, right? You don't want to, but that again goes back to your thing. This, if you're going to invest early enough, there is higher risk. There is no doubt about it. So to find an opportunity which is de-risked a lot and still at a low enough valuation is, is kind of a, I mean, you're playing a game with yourself at that point and you're looking for an arbitrage opportunity, which usually doesn't happen. Now, COVID-19 did bring some arbitrage opportunities to people because people maybe had cash crunch issues. Uh, companies had that. So it did present some opportunities to investors. But Overall, it's very hard to come up and find those opportunities where still everything is good and then, you know, they're not looking for a lot and yeah. they're, they're undervalued. Well, healthcare is not really going to, you know, be affected by most anything. I mean, yep. a pandemic happens, war happens, health, healthcare is always going to be needed, you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's why I, I shifted into healthcare. I was always passionate about healthcare. Um, I have like nine doctors in my family, um, but, wow. but, but like, uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, I've always been passionate about it. I actually studied in school for a little bit, um, but I don't think I was, I, I had a personal connection to it when I was younger, mm -hmm. so I didn't continue on that path. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I could have, uh, if I had more of a connection to it. Now I have much more of a connection to it because, you know, my, I have a sickness with my dad and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, but so also from, from the perspective of someone who's raising capital, so you've done a great job of raising capital, right? So if there's someone listening that is like, man, we, we, we have such a great device. So, you know, as you guys know, he, uh, Amit mentioned Brant yesterday and he said, one of the biggest frustrations is knowing that what you have is like the best thing is like, 
can can help so many people but not being able to articulate it in the right way articulate you know to investors or whoever that you're selling to uh that this is better than anything and it's it's always it's always like the worst feeling when you know you have the best thing you know you have the the best product but um you're not able to to get people to pull the trigger right um so you've been able to get investors to pull the trigger on on uh on your company so what what advice can you impart on on those people who are trying to to raise capital yeah i think it's like brand mentioned yesterday as well you need to simplify your pitch as much as possible and have it somewhat which is relation related to what they can relate to right uh that's the first thing like if you can have that as simplified as possible then that helps but secondly it's also are you reaching out to the right investors uh you know i mean there are a lot of investors and not everybody is going to be writing a check to you and you need to be open to rejections uh but you need to learn from those in some ways which is why is this guy not investing in me and you just ask that question up front you know what you don't want is you want a yes or a no what you don't want is a maybe right because then you're not understanding what's happening here you want to know why it's a no and you ask that question and hopefully the investor responds back and says you know i just don't think your team can put it off or i just don't think this technology once you have that then you can go back to your books and try to answer that question and yeah. and you keep learning right and it's it's a it's a it's not a it's not a one you know one time deal where you prepare a pitch and that's it you learn your pitch like how i used to pitch 4 years ago is very different than how i would pitch today it's a different audience at times that i'm pitching to so you have to cater your presentation to your audience uh if i'm investing to angel investors or to physicians then i would kind of look at it how it impacts their practice and their patients if i'm just talking to a private equity firm where it's all about financials then it has to make sense from them from an roi perspective so if you can have a story catered to their needs and this is again what brand was saying let's not talk about how great yeah. you are no if you can yeah. cater it to their needs right it makes it slightly easier to sell that story again brant is a is a guy that wrote the 3 minute rule is very popular in the uh um kind of investor space uh and uh in entrepreneur space uh regarding pitching and getting your message across in the most concise way possible that really gets people to go ah okay i understand um and uh and so he was talking with us all all together um yesterday he's actually a super busy guy um but found time and he's going to be a judge at at the next conference as well. Um how do you feel that we're going to have striker in attendance? I think it's good. I mean they're going to look at their strategic uh plan yeah. and see where things fit into it. Now it's again a pretty interesting thing. Like you might think you have the or we might think we have the greatest technology in the world, but if it doesn't fit into a strategic plan for a specific corporate strategic and that yeah. could be anybody i'm not going to name striker then you it really doesn't matter how great you are because those guys are not in that space so you need to know who your real players are in your space who you could work with now there's always a chance a strategic could enter a new market uh and then you could be the cornerstone or the platform they build everything on but that's a very slim possibility so you play your odds right at the end of the day looking at a strategic now especially striker i mean striker is great they're in different fields you know different verticals uh do a bunch of stuff even for us there's some synergies there uh but you know again we, we need to understand who from striker is showing up what are they looking for 
Sure. Uh, what's their plan over the next two to three years? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so you said your pitch changed over the last four years or um, how has it, how has it changed uh, and how have you adjusted based on, you know, investor feedback? Yeah. I mean, you know, in the beginning it was usually driven by technology is great and we have a track record. Those were the two main things, right? Like we, we would just go into the technology. We didn't have much to show beyond that. And then we started getting asked questions about market and we had a lot of anecdotal data. Oh yeah. You know, in my previous life, this is what happened, but that's your data, right? You, it's skewed data based on what you saw. So we had to go out and get third party market research to validate our claims. So a lot of those validations happened over a period of two years. And then that validated data, whether on the market research side, on the physician side, uh, ROI side, started going back into our decks in a language that made sense to investors. Uh, and then finally, you know, we started looking at, okay, great. You know, we're talking about prostate, but where else could it be used? Is this a technology that could incorporate other things? From day one, we wanted to bring robotics, but we didn't have robotics. We didn't have AI. So those things started becoming reality. So that vision, you keep executing on it, and then you keep showing those execution steps and your story becomes more. More fleshed out. Yeah. 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 More, so more. Convincing. Yeah. And then also your investor base changes. Earlier on, you're presenting to angel investors and not as many VCs. Now you do pitch to VCs even from day one, but you know, you're in, investing more to people who, like you mentioned in the beginning, that it could be a personal story that drives their decision. That happens. Now that could happen even in a VC firm where a partner has had a personal, you know, incident that biases their decision, but is rarer or less likely than it would be with a single investor or an angel investor. So then you kind of know who these people are, how can you relate to them? If they are your friends, then you kind of know what they believe in you and you believe in, I mean, you know, so it, it just depends. So you do cater your, your pitch to what these people are looking for. Mm, yeah. Why do you think, it, do you think that for the, the same reasons that in entrepreneurs get into the healthcare space, is mainly the same reason why investors get into the healthcare space because there's something personal about healthcare. It's so personal, that, you know. Yeah, absolutely, right? Like, why would you? You know, it's so much easier to get into some of the other investments. Right? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I could put money in commercial real estate, and you know, I still at least have my collateral to show for it, if nothing else. Yeah, yeah. So you would think, I mean, of course, the returns are are big if things click, but then also you could have huge losses if the things don't work out the way they're supposed to. Yeah. It's more so, complex. Yeah. It's more complex, but you know, you're going in to make a, make a difference. Uh, as an investor, you're going in to make a difference. Uh, otherwise, why would you do that? Uh, there are other ways you could invest money. Now somebody could say, no, I know the market. Well, I find arbitrage opportunities. I can make money. I have a great track record on ROI, which people have shown but then you could probably do it a lot better in some of the other industries as well. If, if you tried that. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, I think they, they are there to make an impact for sure. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay, cool. Um, so a bit, um, how can I would provide, I would provide the, your uh, email only, but, uh, how can, uh, uh, investors get a hold of you or anyone that, uh, wants to help a family member or anything like that once this is on the market, um, how can I get a hold of you? Are you eventually going to have like 
uh, a network of physicians that, you know, you can list on a website that has your device? Yes. So we're going to have that next year. We can always connect people to the physicians who are going to start using it this year and next year. Uh, we welcome patients and even people who, I mean, we don't care if they're investors or anything. If somebody has any feedback for us, if they think this could be great for them, or even if they have any constructive feedback for us on what could be done better, we would love to talk to them. Uh, we always have people here who are looking for inputs. They're looking for customer inputs, consumer inputs. Uh, we will have a patient-driven uh, marketing campaigns, which will start next year and the year after. Uh, and they will directly approach people and ask them how this could impact them and, and, you know, use their feedback. So, but, you know, you can reach, you can reach me, you can reach us on our contact us page on our website, hello at promaxo.com. Uh, you will get a response within a week. Awesome. Awesome. Sounds good. Um, any other piece of advice that you want to impart upon uh, the world at this moment? You know, I'm not much for advice. I think like people should do what they believe in. Uh, they should do something that, that they truly believe in. And once they believe in it, they should stick with it. And, and you know, you can, you can have a great vision that could change the world. If people challenge it, listen to it. Uh, try to incorporate some of those uh, back, into your, back into your thinking. And then you should be able to execute on your, on your grand plans. Uh, that's how an entrepreneur thinks, right? Like at the end of the day, you have ups and downs every day, but you need to be able to just keep moving forward. Uh, and if you're able to do that, you will create an impact. Wonderful. Wonderful. Awesome. Thank you, Amit. Thank you so much for doing the podcast and look I forward to this opportunity. Thank you so much. Of course. Thanks.